uh, our staff, our ministry staff here at the church uses an app called Slack, which is a project management app, and we communicate with each other. And, and this week they all started putting on things like, hey, we're praying for you this week, James, and those kinds of things, which makes me more nervous, not less. <laughs> um, and, uh, and they actually talked uh, this week about uh, someone on the staff remarked that this was really timely uh, because we're going to talk about racism in America this week. And uh, it is one of those uh, topics where they say, oh, it's really timely because of the events of this week and the turmoil that's happening in our country. And uh, it's a sad thing to me because it seems to be timely frequently. Uh, So that you know, if you're here for the first time, uh, we are a seven, almost eight, I don't even know anymore, seven and a half year old church plant in which we started off. And uh, um, it is a... um, so we get to be involved with a lot of different church plants. I help run the church planting board for our conference and our denomination. So we've been involved with uh, other church plants as far as coaching them. And there's church plants like in Corvallis and here in the city and in Washington that we've helped with. Uh, like they come and visit us and we show them everything to do. Some of them have copied our logo off of our website. I am not mad. Bitter, yes, but not mad. Uh, <laughs> but the... Uh, we actually copied a lot of stuff of uh, other people anyway, so it's, it's how things go at the beginning. But there's a, uh, uh, they often say, so what's the secret? Like, how do you get so successful? And, and uh, Daryl, who's a good friend of mine, he was one of the original pastors here, and uh, Dr. Mishler, if you know him, and uh, he actually said, well, James's key was marrying Heather. And if you're here for the first time, that's, I'm, I'm married, uh, the singer, and that's key, basically, to uh, having a rapidly growing uh, church plant. Notice that most people will ignore the pastor and be here for the music. And so uh, she kind of kills it. And uh, that wasn't, like, my plan wasn't plant churches, like marry a singer and plant churches, but it was uh, God's plan, I guess. Um, when I was... Uh, like, you know when you date girls in high school and then you get to a certain level and you're like, okay, like, I need to like, have a life. And so uh, you stop dating girls and you start looking for, well, <laughs> all right. So you learn one thing about me, who my wife, second thing, kind of conceited. So, uh, uh, <laughs> um, so I was started, I stopped saying that I was dating and I was holding auditions. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but, and that's probably rude, and that was one of the things that I needed in a spouse. But I figured I had this like list, this mental list, that I wanted to, to marry a believer, someone who followed Jesus, because I uh, followed Jesus, and that was the most important thing to me. And so I was like, this is like, why, why, why would I audition anybody that doesn't love the most important thing in my life? Um, she had to be gorgeous, uh, partly because I, I would be kissing this person for the next like 50, 60, 70 years. <laughs> Um, but also because I wanted to have, like, stunningly good-looking children, right? And so I was like, it is, uh, sometimes I feel guilty for not having more children and blessing the world, but you can refer back to that conceited bit. Um, I, I needed someone who was really strong, right? Like, um, because I am a bit, uh, pushy, <laughs> Uh, it, I often talk about that I'm such a jerk if I married someone who just uh, like did whatever I wanted or never pushed back against me, uh, I'd, I'd be an even worse jerk. And so the, my, everything good about me today and my personality is because I married someone who was willing to call me on my crap. Uh, so that's what, what did I say? Believer, gorgeous, uh, strong. Oh, and I wanted someone smart. I learned in high school um, that... After you are done doing the kissing part, girls like to talk a lot, and uh, so I wanted someone who was, like, interesting to listen to, right? If you're, like, in high school and you're a man today, like, write this stuff down, man, all right? Because you, you're going to be talking to this person for 50 years, like, you need them to be able to, like, learn new things, all right? And then lastly, they need to be into Kevin Garnett, who just retired this week. It's an interesting thing. I bought my wife a Kevin Garnett rookie card for our engagement present. I thought it was very appropriate. I still have it in my stuff. Um, (laughs) uh, So I'm uh, pursuing Heather. And uh, Heather was in a band at the time, and the band was playing at this kind of Six Flags in Canada deal. It's called Canada's Wonderland. And uh, so it's like a Christian day, and she's singing in this... Uh, band at this thing, and, and Heather's mom walks up to me, 
And uh, Heather's mom, if you've ever met her, is your friend, all right? And uh, she will talk to you about everything and anything immediately, all right? And uh, she's very, very outgoing. And so she walks up to me and goes, oh, you must be James, and right? And I get this look on my face like, wait a second, right? Because what you don't know is that Heather's dad is from Belize, uh, and he moved to Canada uh, in a long time ago, rode a bus from Belize to Canada and went to school there. And when he was in Canada, he met Heather's mom, who is from uh, the Medford area here in Oregon. So Canada, Heather's dad is um, black, and not just like a little bit black, and Heather's mom is white, Oregon white. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and so when Heather's mom walks up to me and starts going, I'm Heather's mom, blah, 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 right? And she's talking, I'm hearing nothing, because for the first time I'm noticing, wait a second, Heather's black. <laughs> And that sounds all like naive or whatever, like, oh, it's so romantic, I was colorblind. No, I was just like, I was very, very young, right? And very, very self-centered and uh, did not notice those kinds of things, right? Uh, and so my experience, so you know, Heather's mom and dad got married, like they me measure their anniversaries in decades now, right? They got married at a time when uh, they weren't allowed to date. Uh, like, the, uh, like at the place that they worked, banned that. The place actually since like officially went out and apologized to them for that. It was a beautiful reconciliation, I think. Uh, but they grew up in a time when a white woman and a black man being married uh, was looked down on by a lot of people. I married Heather in Toronto, uh, where uh, Toronto is very much, as much as we say like New York is a melting pot, Toronto like Canada's a very, very open immigration policy. Uh, we have a lot of space <laughs> to, you know, it's cold space, but it's space. And, uh, um, and we actually moved from there. We got married and, uh, in July, and in January 17th, we moved to the United States, and we moved to Stevens County, Georgia, uh, which has, measures population by the size of the county, not by the cities, all right? Very, very small rural area, and I was going to school there. And that's where I learned these things, uh, that, that racism was a real thing. I actually had, uh, like, we had, like, and no racism rallies in high school and stuff like that, and we were all like, I don't understand what's going on. Like, uh, there are three black people in my town, and I know all of them, and they're all really cool, and I don't, you know, and, and like, I live far enough north, it was past where people wanted to be, right? Like, if your parents didn't get a job there, you didn't move there kind of thing. And uh, so there was... Uh, we moved to the south. I had to take English. I started college in, when we moved to Georgia in January, and so I had to take English 1 um, because I was a math guy. And so I was in English. It was me and all the kids that failed English in the fall and taking it over again. So I looked awesome, right? And uh, like I was the only one that hadn't failed so far. Uh, we had to read Letters from a Birmingham Jail by MLK Jr., and uh, in our big book of things we had to read for English class, I had no idea. Like, and I went to the teacher and talked to her. She was a fantastic teacher. Helped me a lot. And uh, um, like I told her, I'm awful at this, but I'd like to not suck at it. And she actually helped me. Uh, and uh, it is, I, I went to her and I was like, I have no idea what, what this guy is talking about. And I think that's bad about me. And, and I, I thought that there was like uh, a civil war a long time ago and this was settled. And so we actually had friends visit from Canada. They drove down, and we went down to Atlanta and visited uh, the MLK um, uh, Museum and his grave and the Ebenezer Church and those kinds of things. And uh, I, this is going to be embarrassing. This is like no word of a lie. There was a guide there, like, showing things, right? And they have these huge pictures of, like, when they did uh, marches across bridges and uh, the authorities were spraying the uh, marchers with water hoses and, the, and fire hoses and those kinds of things. Just awful, awful things. And I, no word of a lie, out of my mouth said, hey, so how did they get people to volunteer to reenact all these things? And she said, excuse me? And I'm like, well, to get the photos, because, you know, back when there was racism, they didn't have cameras to do photos. And she looked at me like I was, like, from outer space, which apparently I was. I had literally no idea uh, that it was just a couple decades ago, uh, that it was just 30, 40, 50 years ago that these things were happening, when they had cameras. 
And so my experience, uh, and, and so I looked like an idiot, and my wife was standing there going, Ugh, right? <laughs> Wives, you can give an amen if you do this a lot, right? But uh, that's basically my marriage. I, when my wife rolls her eyes, I call them my I love you eyes. Um, <laughs> So we go down there, and so my experience of uh, racism was rather naive, and my experience of uh, American history was rather naive, and uh, so I've learned uh, quite a bit, and it just uh, continues to break my heart uh, at the, um, the frustration that healing and reconciliation brings uh, with, a, with us as a country. Um, I moved here, and I immigrated here, and I love it here. And you won't hear me say, like, oh, you should be more like Canada, because there's plenty of things in Canada that you do not want to be like. Uh, but this is a thing where, in this country with racism, it just uh, breaks my heart. And just, it isn't like a, uh, um, it isn't an abstract theology to me. It is a personal uh, issue with my family and uh, with my wife, and with my in-laws, uh, who live in Salem now, and with my kids. Uh, so it isn't something that I'm going to talk about, like, here's six theological points, all right? I'm going to start and tell you a little bit of theology, uh, and then I want to actually define some things and talk about some things, and then we're going to um, read the book of Amos, and I think there's a couple of practical things that we can talk about. Um, so you know, Heather and I were married in 1999, which means, yes, our marriage was illegal in Alabama. Um, <laughs> I've been to Alabama, uh, and, uh, and Alabama didn't change their inter interracial uh, marriage laws until the year 2000, uh, which it's, on the one hand, we're like, yeah, stupid Alabama, uh, but you don't want to say that. Anybody from Alabama? Yeah, you're not raising your hand now, but... Uh, but it wasn't like an enforced law because it changed in the 60s where the Supreme Court of the United States said those laws are unconstitutional. And so they, it wasn't like, it was just that they didn't get around to it. And there's some things that Oregon didn't get around to either until very, very late, but we won't, we'll get to that in a second. Let me define a couple of things for you. Um, here's what racism is, okay? Uh, racism is a belief... Um, that members of each race like, uh, possess certain characteristics or abilities uh, as a race or as an ethnic group. And that belief is used to enforce feelings of superiority or inferiority based on the characteristics or abilities that you have this belief uh, that people of different ethnic groups or um, races have. Racism is plainly against the scripture. Um, I'm going to put a couple of scriptures up real fast. I'm just going to read them because uh, instead of going to everything, this is creation narrative, Genesis 1. Uh, let us make mankind, sorry, then God said, let us make mankind. That means all of them in our image, in our likeness. So they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and the livestock and all the wild animals and all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. There's no reference to any, any person, human being, who isn't created in the image of God. And it's kind of repetitive when you read it. Let us make, him in our, make mankind in our image. So God created them in his image. In the image of God, he created them, right? Like it's like nailing this down in Genesis 1. Then in Acts uh, chapter 17, you can put that up. This is the Apostle Paul who's speaking. He said, from one man, he, who's God, made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. Uh, for all people, according to the scripture, and you can debate what you believe about creationism, blah, blah, blah. That's boring to me. Uh, fun but not today, uh, from all mankind in all races came from Adam and Eve who were created in the image of God. And you can explore all sorts of things as far as Trinitarian theology goes. In our denomination, the Trinity is the primary basis for everything that we believe. 
We believe that the Scripture is authoritative and a normative in our life because of the Trinity, and the diversity in the Trinity is actually significant, that there's God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit who are different but the same, who are three but are one. And because of that diversity, we actually find that God is stronger, and diversity in the human the mankind in the human race actually makes us stronger. Uh, and so we, uh, and that's an easy sermon to preach. That's the one I actually wrote and then had to uh, change. But out of, for all people are made in this image of God. And so racism, where you think that one particular group is inferior or superior to another because of abilities or characteristics that they possess, uh, you, you can't carry that and be faithful to the scripture. Racial bias is something that's a little bit different. And racial bias are attitudes and stereotypes that affect our understanding, our actions and decisions in an unconscious manner. Racial bias is an unconscious effect on our decisions, understandings, and actions relating to uh, attitudes or stereotypes that we carry unconsciously. I had and still continue to have racial bias because it's unconscious in uh, me. And so racial bias isn't a thing that you say, oh, you have racial bias, so you're a racist. A racist is a person who is intentionally uh, claiming superiority or inferiority. Racial bias usually happens because an unconscious understanding uh, or actions or belief about different ethnic groups or racists. Racial bias is something that the scripture actually reveals to us and life experience reveals to us. And then we say, oh, geez, I was biased. I don't want to be biased. And we change. Racism says, oh, I'm right. And these people are awful. And I'm better. Or maybe there's some weird racism that says those people are better and I'm inferior. And there's nothing that can change that. So racial bias is something that you don't have to... Uh, I'm not going to hate you, and I don't think we should hate each other for admitting that we found out that we have a bias, right? Does that make sense? Uh, this is one of those sermons where I don't get a lot of amens. Um, then there's something called systemic racism that uh, we're going to talk about a bit today because it's in the scripture. Systemic racism is racism that's codified or structured into the government or the social institutions. It's both deliberately and sometimes indirectly against certain people to limit their rights. Systemic racism is built into the structures of government or politics or institutions like the church. When we moved to the South, uh, we actually had people tell us, oh, go to this church, oh, definitely don't go to that church, because we were an interracial couple. Uh, it was the weirdest experience in my life because I had always been in um, rather loving churches that pe there would be churches who would say, oh, those people aren't allowed to be with these people. And for me, that was uh, striking, but that's what that is, is systemic racism. In Deuteronomy 10, uh, 17 to 19, uh, I'm going to put this up too. Actually, I might just use the screen all day. I have a Bible up here, so you know I actually read it, but I'm just going to read the screen because you're reading your screen too. Uh, we talked about this a couple weeks ago when we talked about immigration. Deuteronomy 10, 17. For the Lord your God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow, the vulnerable, and loves the foreigner residing among you, giving them food and clothing. And you are to love those who are foreigners, for you yourself were foreigners in Egypt. This is God talking to the Israelites, saying, you are to love those who aren't where their home is because you have experienced what it is to live in a place that isn't your home. And as Christians, the scripture teaches us that we are, like if we look at our ancestry, our spiritual ancestry, is actually, we would say not that the Israelites were foreigners in Egypt, we would say we were foreigners in Egypt because we've been adopted into the family of God and this is a whole scriptural thing that it's just true that Jesus and God see the people of God as this family of God and we're adopted as sons and daughters of God. And so we, our people, know what it's like to live as foreigners and so we are to love those who are the other. We are to love people who are not like us. We're to love people who are uh, apart 
from us. At the heart of what racism is, um, well, let me say this. I think the key to racism, if you want to maintain racism, you need to outlaw interracial marriage. Because it seems that no matter how hard you work, those dang young people keep falling in love. It's why we love the Romeo and Juliet story, right? It's like, oh, don't be, be separate, be apart. Those are our enemies. And then Romeo and Juliet come along and we're like, ah, oh, yeah, but we kind of like Romeo and Juliet, right? As long as the movie's not like too true to the actual wordings, then it's kind of boring. Uh, but we like that kind of thing. And this kind of um, romantic love among young people doesn't seem to understand the boundaries that the adults, the grown-ups, put on them. Young people keep falling in love with people who the adults say don't fall in love with those people. So laws against interracial marriage are key to enforcing racial culture and, and racism in a culture. In, when you look at uh, the history, you can look this stuff up. From 1967, the Supreme Court struck down all laws against interracial marriage here in the United States. Uh, at that time, it was still illegal in 17 different states. There were 17 states uh, where interracial marriage was illegal. And the Supreme Court actually ended up with this case because this couple decided they wanted to get married and they drove to another state and got married and then came back and they were arrested and they had a lawyer who appealed and appealed and appealed. Um, today, well, let me say this. In 1960, when this law was happening, 0.4% of marriages were interracial. And today, 8.4%. This one study says 8.4%. Another study I found says 14%. So a very, like an increase, 10 or 20 or 30-fold uh, in 50 years, uh, where interracial marriage becomes uh, just the way life is. And there's still a small group of people who are opposed to interracial marriage, and there's some interesting dynamics that are happening as far as uh, the influx of Hispanic people in the United States, and on the West Coast especially, the influx of Asian peoples coming to the United States and the way that marriage works, that sociologists are looking at. This isn't like a religious thing or something. This is just something that's happening in the United States. The interracial marriage for me becomes a measurement of uh, people's attitudes and exceptions or beliefs about racism. Because you come to a church, like here's the thing, I'm not saying you need to go and marry someone who's not in your race. You should have your five rules just like I did and find the right person, right? Uh, but because you come to a church where the leadership is obvious about their belief about this, it creates a space where people feel safe, where people who wonder or who have a history who grew up, like when I say those dates, some of us were there, like some of us were alive, some of us barely alive, but uh, I mean just born, that's a weird way to say just born. Um, <laughs> some of us were very young, this is why I should write this stuff down, barely alive, good night. This is why people come to me and ask for tips on planting churches. No one ever comes and asks me for tips on preaching. But some of us were just born, but this is like our lifetime stuff. And, well, not mine, but some of us, this is our lifetime stuff. And so when we think about attitudes and beliefs and understandings, Heather and I led a youth ministry in our church down south, and uh, we were an interracial couple leading a youth ministry, which created opportunities for the kids who didn't, many, many of the kids in the younger generations didn't hold the same racial biases or racist beliefs of, as their parents for the kids to be able to reach out to their friends regardless of their race or the, regardless of also their socioeconomic position. And so we actually had diversity because the leadership of our church said, yes, we believe in this and yes, this is 100% scriptural. Which is a weird thing, I know, for a lot of us to think. Well, one of the things we don't often recognize, and I want you to know something, I love living in Oregon. Um, yeah, this week, uh, hopefully you saw, uh, President Bush signed in to act this, uh, the National Museum of African American History. And uh, he, there was actually, there was these great pictures of the First Lady Michelle Obama hugging President Bush, and he was leaning, so she looked so tall. And... Uh, <laughs> Uh, but there's uh, just this 
kind of a beautiful moment where President Bush actually said, a strong nation doesn't hide its history. It addresses it face on and actually like works to bring amends to that. I'm totally misquoting. I took a picture. It's in my phone. Um, but you can look on Facebook, I'm sure, because that's the best place to have conversations about race issues. But, <laughs> but we'll talk about that in a minute. Um, but they started this thing. And what, one of the things that's difficult for people who live in Oregon is this. Um, the, there are 13% black people. 13% of America is black. In Oregon, it's 2%. And that's just like a comparison between white and black because Oregon uh, was started with some laws on the books. Uh, they were called exclusion laws. Oregon has a, in its history a, a pretty famous law. Um, this is from 1844, and there's not much evidence that it was ever enforced because they ended up just selling these people into slavery. But if you were black or partially black, you would be whipped twice a year until you were motivated to move here in Oregon. Uh, and there's, again, this doesn't mean Oregon was like the most racist place in the world. Oregon was just bold enough to actually write it down. Oregon as a state, and this is old, old history, and so I'm not trying to make you feel guilty if you're from Oregon or blah, blah. I'm from Oregon, all right? I'm, I chose to live here. <laughs> when we look at our history, though, the history of Oregon uh, as a state has codified into our original constitution and into what they called the Bill of Rights, uh, what these things that are called exclusion laws. And so it was actually radically difficult for a person, a non-white person, uh, to live in our state. And as uh, I know that some of you may have never heard this and this might be kind of offensive to you because I'm saying something bad or you think I'm trying to uh, talk bad about Oregon or something, let me... Uh, there was also, you can read in the history of Oregon, many people who were heroes in the fight. In 1883 was the first failed attempt to amend the Constitution to allow black people to actually move to Oregon. It failed in 1883. It failed in 1895. It failed in 1916. It failed in 1927. Uh, we're getting closer and closer, aren't we? That's the last time it failed. But what I read, you can read into that, oh, those dang racists. But it also shows that there was a group of people who refused to quit. Do you see that? There's a group of people who said, this isn't right, and we're not just going to bail on this, but we're going to work in this in order to bring about a better history and bring about a better world. In 2014, in the city of Albany, during the Veterans Day parade, uh, there were groups who put... Uh, flyers out, anti-diversity flyers, and put them on people's cars in the city of Albany. So people went back to their cars from the parade uh, with flyers uh, that were uh, against what the scripture teaches. Uh, that brings it home, doesn't it? In 2008, a Jamaican family in Medford woke up and walked outside to have a cross burning on their lawn, as well as the letters KKK burnt into their lawn in the city of Medford. If you want to, if you ever meet someone who's in the KKK, call it a cross burning, okay? They hate that. Uh, they call it something different. And it's a great way to kind of jab them for being so freaking racist. Um, again, that's not theology, that's emotion. I shouldn't say that, but you should definitely do that. Um, <laughs> there is... Um, as much as the events that we saw on the news this week happened very, very far away, we have a history very, very, very close to, and a recent history very, very close to ourselves. And so for me, racism isn't something that we should say, oh, let's not talk about that, we're good here. But it's actually a place where I believe that the church scripturally becomes the hope of the world because the government can institute laws and the people can institute society norms and say, if you're not like this, you're fringe. But only Jesus can change hearts. And the church is the physical embodiment. Of the, it is called the body of Christ here on earth today. The only hope for people is the church. The only hope for our country, for the people of the world, 
for any country, for any person, in any place, or in any time in history, is the church. And so the church taking a leadership role in issues, not just this issue, but this issue of racism, actually changes the dynamic of the conversation. It actually changes the reactions of people, it changes the tone of the conversation, and it increases the amount of love that people experience, which is to experience Jesus. And I'm not saying that we back up and say, well, racism is just a hard issue and they need Jesus, and so we back up and pretend that, like, oh, we're just going to pray and that's it. We can pray, and I actually think that's the first thing you should do, not post on your social media, but we can pray, but then there's actual ways to live out and things that you can do that actually matter. Uh, let's, I want to get back to some scripture. This is Galatians 3, 26 to 29. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew, which is the chosen people, the Israelites, the Hebrew people, nor Gentile, which is everybody else in the known Greek or Roman world. Neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. And so you know, um, we'll probably talk about this verse some more, but... Uh, it doesn't mean that there's no longer males and no longer females. It's saying the distinction between them because there's still people who are Jews and there's still people who are Gentiles. There's still people who are slaves. And there's still people who aren't. Slavery in the, in the time of this writing was actually a social construct that had to deal with debt. We still have slaves today. Just you write a check every month to your MasterCard and that, that's called MasterCard because you're a slave to it. Um, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. This is an aggressive verse, but let me read you Colossians 3.11. Uh, can you put that on the screen? Here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised. If you don't know the scripture, the Jewish people were all circumcised, non-Jews were not. Barbarian or Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. The interesting addition here is that barbarian and Scythian, right? Uh, the barbarians were actually the people who lived. So you had Jews and Gentiles, circumcised and uncircumcised. And then you had people who lived outside of the civilized world. And uh, those people spoke in languages to which the people who lived in the civilized world, their language sounded like this, bar, 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 right? That's how they talked. And so they called them barbarians, all right? Uh, and so if they were like... I am special as a Jewish person within these Gentiles. Okay, we can accept these Gentiles. But then Paul actually goes even further and says, these other people whose language you make fun of, actually they can be one in Christ as well. That salvation is available for the people who you think are special, for the people who you don't think are special, and for the people who you don't think there's any redeeming hope for. It's this little verse that's stuck in there, and all of a sudden it's like, oh, snap. <laughs> the Bible tends to do that, I guess. But we've talked about racism, and we've talked about individual racism, uh, but I want to talk about systemic racism just really quickly. Uh, systemic racism is a, it's like a radically difficult issue. It's a radically difficult problem uh, dealing with um, things that you might not even know or understand that are, uh, have a racial bias or a racist intent to them where people or people groups are suffering because of it. Uh, there's this book in the Old Testament called Amos. Amos is an Old Testament prophet, and he's actually probably the first Old Testament prophet to actually write things down. It's probably the first prophetic book that they actually like, here's the book, here's what Amos says. And I want to read you three verses from Amos. And, uh, and then talk about what Amos actually, he actually approaches, he was from Judah, which is kind of the southern part of the nation of Israel, and he actually preached in Israel, which would be the northern kingdom, uh, where the, they kind of split, they had this little civil war over different issues. This is what Amos says, this is what the Lord says, for the sins of Israel, even for four, I will not relent, uh, sorry, for three sins of Israel, even for four, I will not relent, they sell the innocent for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. They trample on the heads of the poor as on the dust of the ground, and they deny justice to the oppressed. 
Father and son use the same girl and so profane my name. There's two parts to this. The Amos is calling them out and saying you are actually the debt holders. Debt holders in their culture would actually sell people into slavery. And, and, and what I mean, debt holders, like you would owe someone the money. There's examples of this where you owe someone, uh, like written down examples, where you owe someone money for a pair of sandals and you didn't pay in time, a pair of sandals. And because you didn't pay that very small debt, they actually sell you into slavery, which would become a lifelong punishment for your very, very small debt. It's an unjust or an unjust application of the law for a very, very small debt. This is why we are always having discussions over how large or how small or how effective is that particular crime and is the penalty equal to the size of the crime. And in this society, a very, very poor person had a very, very small debt and could be sold into lifelong slavery. And so there's predatory, lent, predatory lending that was going on that God actually condemns in the scripture. And there was a, a, sexual, a sexuality that saw women as objects to be used. And that's actually condemned by Amos in this scripture. And then Amos 5, will move forward. There are those who hate the one who upholds justice in the court and detest the one who tells the truth. You levy a straw tax on the poor and impose a tax on their grain. Therefore, you have built stone mansions and you will not live in them. Though you have planted lush vineyards, you will not drink their wine. For I know how many are your offenses and how great your sins. There are those who oppress the innocent and take bribes to deprive the poor of justice in their courts. In this culture, there was a court system where the elders would come to the community gate. And apparently in this culture, uh, the richest people could bring money and buy a favorable decision by the court of the elders at the city gate. And so the poor who didn't have enough money to buy a favorable decision were trampled on and treated unjustly. And, that's the second part, and there was a taxation system that actually oppressed the poor to the benefit of the rich. I know we always talk about separation of church and state, but apparently God cares about our taxation system. God cares about how are the poor treated in your society, and if the poor are being oppressed for the benefit of the rich, God is actually opposed to that and says, you don't get to live in your mansion and you don't get to drink your wine. Uh, Amos 4 and uh, 6. <laughs> Now, let me say this. I'm going to say some things that are offensive, but I, I am not as bad as Amos. Amos is talking to these women, and this is how, what he says. Hear this word, you cows of Bashan on Mount Samaria. <laughs> I'm thinking at this point the woman stopped listening. You women who oppress the poor and crush the needy and say to your husband, bring us some drinks. So husbands, next thing your wife says, bring us some drinks. You can go ahead and say, you uh, cow. All right. <laughs> we'll see how that goes. Your wife will say, thank you for being so scriptural. That's not going to happen. All right. You say to your husbands, bring us some drinks. You lie on beds adorned with ivory and lounge on your couches. And you dine on choice lambs and fatted cow calves. You strum away on your harps like David and improvise on musical instruments. Uh, it continues. You drink wine by the bowlful and use the finest lotions. And you do not grieve over the ruin of Joseph, which means the ruin of their people. Therefore, you will be among the first to go into exile. Your feasting and lounging will end. Amos is condemning, sorry, Amos in the words of the Lord is reporting the words of the Lord and the Lord is condemning those who are living a luxurious life with no interest or no care for those who are oppressed or who are poor who are living in the ruin and the bad parts of society. And he actually says, you will be the first to go into exile, which is the way that God punished the people of Israel when they stopped living as the people of God. Those are aggressive verses, aren't they? Those are verses where Amos comes out and says the word of the Lord is that God cares about justice and God's people had better be working for justice. 
Here's three practical things I want to give, it, give you, all right? If, so if you're taking notes, you can write this down. Number one, and here's the preachy one, read Amos, all right? I would bet most of us haven't read Amos, and, uh, and then we probably haven't read most of the prophets in the Old Testament. Because we have this image in mind that our uh, real life is over here and Scripture and our spiritual life is over here, and so they're separate, uh, but the truth is that the Scripture has a lot to say about the way that we govern. And in our system, it is so incredible to me, like seriously, that we have this system where everybody gets to be a part of government. Like everybody gets to vote. Like the smartest people get a vote, and the nearly meets people get a vote, and the richest people get a vote, and the poorest people get a vote. And we have this, I think, beautiful system where people get to have a say. And I'm not saying it's perfect. It's definitely beautiful. I come from a country where there's some lady on a throne who says what happens, all right? Not really, but kind of. And I uh, love that lady, uh, but it's kind of cool to live in a place where the president or the top leader serves the people, not rules over the people. Uh, all right, I was expecting some, like, Republican amens there, but all right. Jeez, um, Louise. Uh, number one, read Amos. Number two, uh, and this is, uh, like, it's going to get more difficult as we talk about this, is find some people who are other from you and actually talk to them. And here's what I mean by talk to them. Ask them questions. I will never know what it's like to be a person uh, of color living in the United States. I will never know. And I'm a large dude, and I am a white dude, and so I have a lot of advantages in this society. And I will never know what it's like just from my own personal experience. And so me being able to have friends and ask questions opens my eyes. I will never know what it's like to be married to a police officer. I will never be a wife who walks into church and sits down in a pew knowing that down the pew, we don't have pews, down the chair, down the row, is a person who posted something anti-police on Facebook this week, and here I am, and my husband's at work, and I'm praying that I hope he gets home today. I'll never know what that's like. But I can sit down and ask them, what is that like? If you read the Gospels, before Jesus heals people, you know what he does? He, every time, he says, hey, what's going on? This is Jesus who knows what's going on. There'll be like a person who was paralyzed sitting there. All the paralyzed people are sitting there, and Jesus goes, what's going on? It's like, hey, dummy, I'm paralyzed, just like all the other paralyzed people. But Jesus wasn't asking for information. Jesus wasn't asking to learn something. He was asking because when we ask questions and we listen to the responses, our compassion grows every single time. You can ask your kids, what's it like to be in middle school today? You can ask your friends at work. Some of you, I'm going to, okay, now we're going to go there. You might have friends who are uh, gay or lesbian or GBLTQ or any of those, and you can say to them, hey, you know I'm a Christian. What's it like to be friends with a Christian when you have the sexual orientation that you do? That was a hard question, isn't it? Chances are they're terrified to answer that. And that should probably tell you something. And I'm not talking about what's sin or what's not sin or yeah, 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 we'll talk about that next week. I anticipate like seven or 800 people being here next week. Show up early, sit or close. And, uh, but, and our security team will be doubled. But anyways, <laughs> that's stupid. Um, but asking questions of people who are other from you actually builds your ability to have compassion towards other people. And it actually eliminates the experience of an us and them, which I think is kind of the primary problem, and especially in a place where we say, oh, we're all Americans, but we have a lot of different us and thems here in this culture, and the church can lead the way by engaging in conversations and the kind of conversations where we just listen. This is built into the DNA of this church. When this church started, we actually had a team of people who went to community leaders in the North Albany and downtown area and said, what do you think this neighborhood needs? What do you think these people need? Because I had an idea of what they needed. But when you actually ask people what they need, 
They tell you, and they probably confirm a lot of the things that you thought, but then they feel like, you actually care about me. Do you know what I'm saying? I have people who ask me questions, how's your family doing? And then they check their phone. I know they don't care about my family. And then I've had, I've had other people. I had an older man at South Albany Church when I was a youth pastor there said, hey, could you spell your daughter's name properly for me? Because we made it up. Uh, because I pray for her every day and I want to get it right. That guy cares about me, right? <laughs> I know that right away because he's asking me a question and it's about a detail in my life and he's listening to my answer. Um, so that's number two. Ask questions. All right, 2B. Start with asking questions. <laughs> Because I think we have a lot of ability to say things in our culture. Uh, and we have a lot of ability to say things that get a lot of likes on Facebook. And the reason you do that is because you get dopamine hits. It's like science. You can Google this garbage. You get people to like stuff on your Facebook, you get a lot of dopamine hits. And you're like, oh, I'm awesome. Oh, that's what dopamine is. Oh, I'm awesome. Oh, I'm awesome. Oh, I'm awesome, right? People like me. I am smart, right? And so you can post things. This is why I post pictures of me with my wife, all right? When I'm with my wife, like, 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 right? Just me, eh, all right? <laughs> I know where that's at, and I want dopamine. And so I post pictures of me with my wife, all right? Even if, like, it's my wife and I'm behind her directly, right? I'm good with that. Um, <laughs> when you ask questions, you don't just, like... You actually create yourself, you make yourself a person who doesn't depend on the approval of others, who doesn't depend on being the first one to say something, who doesn't depend on being the leader in the conversation. When you ask questions, you become the leader in compassion and the leader in empathy and the leader in relationships. You become a leader so that when everything hits the fan and something bad happens, there's actually a real-life person that we're not looking on our social media to find out what they say. We actually have a relationship with them and we can hear them because they've asked us questions. Number three. Uh, so first, read Amos. Two, ask questions of people who are different and other than you. Number three is give some people the permission to call you on it. And then... Uh, get the permission from them too. To have people who can call you on your biases is, I think, the most valuable thing in the world. I have multiple people who are willing to do this for me. Other pastors who see some of the things I do or hear me say things. Or uh, My most recent was I posted some things on social media and they said, hey, dummy. And I'm like, I love that you did that for me. Like I send them a message saying thank you because... I genuinely am a dummy sometimes, uh, and I don't want to be. But I have people in my life who can call me on things. And I have people whose lives I call them on things. And every time, let me say this, I say thank you, but every time I first react with this, do you know who I am? <laughs> I am James Carmichael, right? Like, I pastor a radical church in Albany, Oregon, kind of the center of the known universe. <laughs> and like, that's my first reaction. And then I go, oh, wait a second, I'm a dummy. And then I go over and say thank you. When people call me, I don't want you to think that I'm some kind of spiritual guru when people call me on things, I love it. People call me on things that are hard too. And I'm like, no, I do not want you to call me on that. And I do not because I am smart and I am right and I'm going to use big words to win this argument. <laughs> it is the kind of thing when people call me on it, you know what happens to me? I react negatively, and that reaction gets shorter and shorter and shorter because of Christ in me, and then I actually grow. I never grow when people tell me how right I am. <laughs> I don't. You know what I get? Dopamine hits. I put up a picture of me and my wife, and people are like, you guys are gorgeous. No, we're not. She is. <laughs> right? Like, we know where it's at. <laughs> but when, so I, when I get that, and I don't need you to call me on my pictures of just myself. Hmm, James, could have used some Heather in this. No. <laughs> All right? That's not helpful. Call me on my biases, not my ugliness. <laughs> when... <laughs> 
It says something about this church that I had to clarify that. <laughs> number one, read Amos. Number two, ask questions of people who are other than you. And number three is get some people and give them permission to call you on it. Because the more they're able to call you on your unconscious bias, the more Christ-like you become. The more you grow in the Lord and the more of an influence for peace and love and joy that you'll have. Let's pray together. Let's stand and we'll pray. Oh, let me say this. We're going to sing a song together as well. And we all sing the same song for a reason and we all pray the same way for a reason because it's actually a thing about unity. You're probably sitting in the same row or two rows away from people that are going to vote in a way that you can't imagine that a person with a brain can vote. All right? You're probably sitting in the same room of people who don't get to vote. That's me. <laughs> You're... But when we turn to Jesus and sing and worship and pray together, it says something. It says something to each other, and it says something to the world, and it says something to God about who he is in our life. So let's pray together. Jesus, for any fault or sin or shortcoming that we have, we would pray that you would reveal it to us in a brutally honest way, God. And then we pray that you would have the grace to care for us as we walk through that. Jesus, there are things that we do or parts of our history that we just rather ignore and pretend weren't there. But a strong people doesn't hide their past. And a strong people is able to rely on the grace of God and not be defined by their past either. I pray that this church would be part of your church in providing a solution, in providing a leadership voice that sounds like peace and love and light. Because greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. And we will not rest and we will not stop and we will not grow exhausted because we believe that heaven is a real place that we're all going to. And we believe that you taught us to pray, may it be on earth as it is in heaven. May your grace be so real in our lives that our bravery in the issues of race in America and race in our state and our city and our lives and our relationships wouldn't be something that we'd shy away from, but it'd be something that we'd engage because you go ahead of us, Jesus. Allow us to follow you in unity as a church and as a people of God. In your name we pray, dependent on your grace. Amen.